Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who's really excited and very grateful to be at the front seat of biotechnology breakthroughs. In today's episode, I would really like to dedicate to the memory of Dr. Maxine Thompson. Dr. Thompson was featured on episode 117, way back in January of 2018. At the time, she was 93 years old, or 93 years young. When you listen to her, you'd never know that she was uh, in her 90s. But she was full of life, full of happiness, and talked about her career and breaking down barriers as a woman in science. And I really would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 117. Uh, We recently lost Dr. Thompson And I will be forever grateful that I was able to capture the episode that she was on. Today we have a guest who will talk about methylation clocks. And today's guest is Dr. Ekaterina Rogaeva, and she's a professor in the Department of Neurology, the Faculty of Medicine, in the TAN Center of Neurodegenerative Disease at the University of Toronto. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rogaeva. Thank you very much for your invitation, Kevin. And I'm looking forward for your questions. Well, I I am too. I'm looking forward to the answers because I think this is such a fascinating topic. And it really goes back to this idea that maybe there are some uh, markers that we see genetically that allow us to better understand our chronic, our, our, our real age, not just our chronological age, but the age of our development and then maybe relate those to some diseases. So we'll talk all about that. So we talk about lifespan, okay, how long you go from cradle to grave. But there's an interesting term called health span. And why is that relevant in today's aging population? This is a very important question. And that's why my lab, about five years ago, switched to do not just genetic studies, but epigenetic studies. So in terms of lifespan, it's simply as a number of years that a human can live, let's say, from the day you're born to the day you uh, passed away, while uh, health span is the period of life when uh, um, you have a good health within this uh, lifespan. And unfortunately, uh, well, I will start from fortunately, we live longer, especially in developed country, because the technology in the place to keep us alive longer, and we know how to fight uh, some but not all infectious diseases. However, the lifespan is actually maybe not that much changed because uh, at our older age, we have uh, such conditions like neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, kicked in. And therefore, you can live life long, 
but it's still not something which is desirable. For instance, I don't want to be with Alzheimer's disease uh, later on in my life. So the question is, is it possible to measure actually health span, span and do something about this? What kind of genes control our ability to live longer or shorter life and a healthy life? Well, I think that it's a really interesting question because if you look at other people who are the same age as you, you see some that are, you know, doing very well and look very young, very healthy. Some who are a little bit more maybe aged prematurely or suffering from some health ailments. Mm -hmm. And I, I see this all the time in my cohort. And I wonder, you know, is aging really a question of the calendar or are there other biological processes that make this more of just developmental change over time? Again, it's a very important point, which uh, let me a little bit speculate. I think it's a both. Uh, in human life, uh, we kind of expected maybe if you're healthy and uh, strong genetically to live up to 100 years. In fact, a little bit semantic uh, uh, side story in Russian, I'm, uh, my background, of course, Russian, you can judge by accent. Uh, so what happened, uh, we have a term for human being, we call it chelavek, which translates to two words, head and 100 years. Uh, so we expected to live up to 100 years. And why is it life uh, is truncated? I think it's um, we have two processes. One is biological determination. Maybe you call it developmental changes, right? But also there is a parallel process which modify this determination, and we call it biological aging. You might be, by your genetic makeup, well-positioned to live up to 100 years, but with bad habits, low exercise, or overeating, you might truncate your age to 70, to 40. It depends how bad it is. So, uh, that's the point that I do separate two things, and in our body, I think that there is a clock for both situations. One is a reactive clock, which reacts to the habits which you have, smoking versus not smoking. And everything is written on your DNA. And uh, the, another clock, it's sort of, uh, it's determined that maximum years you can have. For instance, mice live in two years. Obviously, it's biologically determined, right? and human can live up to 100. And uh, how we treat our body and therefore DNA, it's uh, very important. But fortunately, now we can measure it. I have to say that the questions about biological age uh, was existed for a long, long time, but only now technology do allow us to develop uh, so-called DNA methylation clocks which do represent biological aging, and that's what is my prime focus uh, of the lab. Okay, well, this is really fascinating. I, what are some of those processes that you know contribute to shortening the, uh, the developmental clock? So the, the one that we we're, the, we're gifted with genetically that defines the ultimate endpoint, that we can't change. What are some of the big factors that influence the other one? I a little bit highlighted it in my previous, but I think that our ancestors knew what it is. It's called healthy lifestyle, right? 
you have to exercise, you have to have uh, healthy habits in terms of uh, smoking, uh, no, no, no smoking, but also you have to be active mentally and uh, stay positive in life. It looks like what I'm studying in my life, a lot, what happened is that even depression could contribute uh, to the shorten your uh, health life. Never mind like uh, Alzheimer and Parkinson's disease. There is a very strong correlation with the uh, age of onset of these diseases and uh, DNA methylation clock, which I study in my lab. But in general point, which I have here, is uh, we all intuitively know what is the healthy lifestyle. And when we abuse it, we have to understand that we abuse our own DNA and one of the most striking uh, realization which I have working on this project is that, say, my mom and dad gave me a particular set of genes, uh, specific DNA with all kinds of mutation, regulation regions, and whatever. But what I'm dying with, it will be different. It's because during my uh, lifetime, I will either... Uh, make it uh, stay healthy or will abuse this. And it will be written on my DNA in, in form of uh, DNA methylation pattern. So what I get from my parents, it will be quite different from what I will die with. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. And so that when we talk about DNA methylation, for those who don't know what this is, it's essentially a chemical modification and a decoration, basically, of DNA. But could you give me, a, like, a, what's a more scientific definition of exactly what methylation is and how it is changing in cells? All right. So um, it's like a very basic definition that um, DNA methylation of uh, cytosines at CPG denucleotides is uh, actually representing one of the key epigenetic mechanisms which change gene expression. In a simple term, uh, in our genome, when C happened to be nearby G, it has the uh, ability to be methylated by complex machinery. And uh, P in between C, P, G, it's just a phosphate group which link C and P in uh, DNA. In a human genome, we have about 28 million CPGs, and it's a lot. It's all uh, our regulators, which gene has to be expressed, which has to be silent. And uh, if um, the methyl group is added uh, frequent enough at particular locus uh, in genome, then it's a send a signal for uh, sort of shut it down, don't express. Uh, however, within our genome, there are some spots which, even if high uh, methylated, it's uh, send the opposite signal for high expression. It's rare, but it could happen. But a general concept is that hypermethylation uh, of CPG uh, region is linked to reduction of gene expression. Okay, so basically, in general, then, is this uh, decoration of DNA or modification of DNA that turns it off in, in general. And I guess the other question on this that I think about, is this cell autonomous, meaning you know the, that one cell in the body would be uh, methylated in one way and cells in the rest of the body in a very different way, or do they somehow 
talk to each other? It's a very important question, and a part of it, of course, unknown. But I think it's, um, it's again, the answer is both. For some cells, it will be particular signal, and then like, let, let me uh, uh, make it a little bit more clear. Uh, we have um, different gene expression and different tissue. That's why our eye, for instance, doesn't look like our liver, right? So within the tissue, uh, some cells allow to talk uh, on the level of some uh, gene expression, and some cells will be silent for particular set of genes. So it's a tissue uh, expression, and it's probably uh, not very interesting for this particular topic because it's a developmental uh, a process uh, when uh, the embryo developed, some genes go through the mutilation and require to be silent. Some genes remain to be active. The most active uh, genome, it would be in sperm, by the way. <laughs> so many of uh, genes in sperm actually active because they are not very specialized in anything. However, um, when we age, when we already, let's say, reach the level of uh, adolescence and get older, there are other things started to kick in. The genes which is normally expressed in young people started to be hypermutilated with age or hypomutilated with age. And then it's created a different pattern. And again, it could be self-autonomous because uh, the, it could affect only a group of cells. But with age, if this group of cells expand, let's say in our brain, that particular gene uh, required to be down-regulated with age, that's what is uh, happening in the parallel with uh, genes which is sort of required to be silent. They, with age, might be activated because they're losing epigenetic fine-tuning. Okay, I see. So this is almost like uh, an accumulation of change over time that um, is really underlying or, or maybe very related to the aging process. How does that relate to other things like uh, shortening of telomeres or other transcriptome changes? It's a very important question. Uh, the reason why, because for years, that's what people know about aging, it's telomeres. Uh, well, of course, it was Nobel Prize uh, discovery, but it's um, usually measured on um, actively divided cells, right? Does it mean that because our neurons not divide, they don't age? They do age. It's a different process, right? So telomeres shortening usually observed um, in, in uh, actively divided cells but it could be also taken under account when people develop the uh, DNA methylation clocks. Some clocks quite complex and include DNA methylation and uh, telomere measurement if there is an accessibility to particular uh, tissues like cells uh, in a in a blood. So it could be a combo. But I would say that what I was um, reading is that uh, DNA methylation is much more sensitive in prediction of the biological age than telomere lens. And that makes it a very exciting area of research because you can uh, take DNA from the blood 
uh, and from the liver, from different tissues, and can predict the uh, biological age of the individual. But to measure telomeres, it's much more complex uh, procedure which require uh, uh, lots of uh, tricks, and it's not very accurate prediction, let's say, for chronological age. So DNA methylation age, uh, based um, on multiple studies, much more uh, accurate prediction of the age for human being. That's really good. I, you know, and I can't believe it because I teach molecular biology. I teach about telomeres. And I didn't even think about this before, that you have to be looking in actively dividing cells. Um, and just for those who are listening who don't know telomeres, those are the ends of chromosomes. And that since the nature of replication uh, DNA is what it is, you always would make shorter telomeres with each round. And so there was a hypothesis that this was related to the aging process. And it may be, but it may not be causal. Anyway, but this idea of methylation, could you really... You mentioned take some blood, maybe take a little liver piece and look at the methylation patterns. Could you really get an accurate vision of someone's biological age, like almost like reading rings on a tree? Yes, it's a very good analogy about a ring uh, on a tree. Uh, in fact, I'm using this analogy when I teach students. So um, let me like. First, uh, briefly introduce, because I don't think we made a definition what is the DNA methylation clock is, what people come, uh, and it's basically a very new area of research. It's about 10 years uh, in the literature. So they found uh, that if you measure cumulative uh, assessment of uh, multiple um, CPGs, and uh, only many CPGs together uh, could give you a so-called DNA methylation clock. One CPG, it will be too weak predictor. Sometimes the, the, the latest uh, DNA methylation clock consists from four CPGs, and it's not very accurate. The biggest, it would be thousand, few thousand CPGs together, which follow the uh, age pattern. It's called age-related CPGs. But to make the subject a little bit more complex, it's uh, we now in literature have 15 different DNA methylation clocks. Some of them trained very, very tightly to recognize a human being uh, biological age, say, like related to the particular disorders. And some trained uh, for just a very high correlation with chronological age. In my opinion, the, it's of course, if it's very tight correlated with chronological age, what is the point, right? We know our passport age, right? It's much more interesting to work with the clock, which could uh, give some deviation from uh, uh, chronological clock, but this deviation biologically meaningful, right? So to go back to your question, so there are some clocks. One is developed uh, by um, Dr. Zhang maybe a couple of years ago with many, many CPGs involved. And it's almost 100% accurate to predict the chronological age. And that's your ring on a tree, right? But there are some clocks 
which developed uh, by other researchers, and my favorite one would be Horvath's clock, which allow us to measure biological aging. And uh, it's sort of uh, measure the deviation between chronological and DNA methylation age. And this deviation associated with many disorders, such as uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and uh, uh, obesity, you name it. It's, it's so important and interesting to see. And it's always in the right direction. The younger our DNA methylation clock, the better condition you have the less chance uh, to develop uh, the, uh, let's say, neurodegenerative disorder. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but the causality side of this, because you mentioned the Horvath clock, and this is a discrete set of genes which show these CPG methylation patterns that are associated with um, uh, different neurodegenerative diseases, but are also elevated in HIV patients. And so here's something that would be an inducible, um, like, so rather than it being something developmental that over time would happen, the HIV patient having the similar Horvath clock, does that kind of suggest that the disease causes the methylation rather than the methylation causes the disease? Yes, it's a very important and painful question because it's like a chicken or egg sort of uh, (laughs) idea. And uh, the simple answer, it is unknown, because in order to cover this question, you need longitudinal studies. Majority of the papers so far, it's like cross-sectional studies, like when you have cases versus control, and you looked, um, let's say, at association or correlation. What you need to do is uh, to collect the data set longitudinally, let's say, That's what I'm trying to do, actually, in my uh, research for the next uh, couple of years. You take the mutation carriers, let's say, gene, which is responsible for Alzheimer's disease. And if you have sufficient number of people who have a mutation, but still young enough uh, not to develop the condition, you collect the blood sample on, on those people every two, three years and see the dynamic the time when they come to the disease, you will have a sort of graph which will show you whether uh, there is an acceleration of the DNA methylation clock uh, when the disease kicked in, right? Or the people already predisposed to the high uh, DNA methylation from the very beginning that will be probably quite a spread between different people. And it might uh, cover the question whether uh, age of onset affected by DNA methylation clock, because perhaps you don't know, but I have to share it with uh, people who listen, that let's say if you have autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease gene like presinilin 1, the spread between people with the same mutation within the same family in case of age of onset assessment would be up to 20 years why some people with the same mutation would develop the disease 20 years later than those one which have the um, same mutation and suffer from the disease at age 40 rather than at age 60. That's a mystery. And I think that maybe the DNA methylation clock uh, in longitudinal studies could cover this question. And the answer, is it uh, 
DNA uh, methylation clock cause uh, the early deterioration of people, or it's like sort of response to the unfortunate condition which is uh, kicking it in uh, close to the disease onset. No, no, I think I think you've got it exactly right because what I'm guessing is that the the real answer is likely that it's multifactorial that we probably have other genetic determinants of methylation but also demethylation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, does are, are there mechanisms that actually remove this methylation actively to maybe restore the DNA to its original form? Yes, it's a, it's a very good point because it's equilibrium what is uh, disturbed by aging or maybe unhealthy attitude of human being. And in this equilibrium, everything is maintenance system is very important, right? Something has to be methylated. It's one set of enzyme. Something has to be demethylated in response to particular signal. And uh, that's uh, machinery is getting by age, just probably stochastic process, right? By age, it's getting not very healthy, but we don't need to help <laughs> to go it outside of uh, equilibrium, right? So my point is uh, we, we have to simply treat our body as gently as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but that's no fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're speaking with Dr. Ekaterina Rogaeva. She's a professor at the Faculty of Medicine in the University of Toronto. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Now, chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, you've already had a little chunk of biotechnology injected into your arm in the interest of fighting SARS-CoV-2. But how do we inspire the hesitant to take this important public health step? It's about protecting the vulnerable, returning to normal, saving the small businesses. These are all the causes you have to talk about to get people excited about vaccination. So share those examples. But remind them also that every death and every long-term health problem is not magic. It came from a virus that was passed to somebody that was adversely affected. And that virus had to have passed through thousands of people since patient one in Seattle, January 2020. Which means along the way, one protected person could have broken that chain. The virus is just a virus. It's our decisions and our behaviors that allowed it to propagate and ultimately harm others. The vaccination is our best defense to break the propagation cycle. It's been shown to be safe, shown to be effective. Break the virus, break the chain, protect others. And let's get back to something better than normal. A place where we all demonstrate our commitment to protect each other from a completely preventable threat. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ekaterina Rogaeva. She's a professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of Toronto. And uh, her specialty is in neurodegenerative disease. But over the last uh, 10 years or so, we're really focused on this idea of the methylation clock and its uh, pattern of DNA changes, which may be predictive as well as diagnostic 
in understanding uh, progression of disease. And one of the things that one of your papers mentioned was the methylation patterns of centigenarians. And what did we learn by looking at, at how the DNA was decorated in older adults? Yes, that's a fascinating story because indeed some people live up to age 100 and longer. And what is the, their methylation clock? And uh, it's not my study, but um, uh, there was a publication related to this that on average, the people who uh, above age 100, their DNA methylation clock almost 10 years younger than chronological age. So they, they do age differently. And uh, it's, it's quite uh, interesting because some of these people uh, actually don't claim very healthy lifestyle. <laughs> and, and yet there is a spread in their uh, habits. And it's uh, bring me to the fact that certain things could be inherited. Uh, the name methylation clock actually uh, could be like healthy one and uh, which ticking not that fast. Uh, there was a study which showed that it's actually there is some level uh, heritability between uh, several generations. So we we can get certain genetic predisposition for our clock ticking uh, not fast, but we can again we with our own habit could settle it down a little bit. Uh, so I say that. Um, Unfortunately, not too many databases do exist for uh, people who live above age 100. And even worse, not all of these people uh, provided information about lifestyle. So it's a bit tricky uh, to study. But I know that NIH put together a call for the grant, which allow uh, to start addressing this particular question what about people who live healthy without neurodegenerative disorders? And uh, I, I hope I can join this team to uh, do the name methylation clock assessment. It always is very fascinating because they'll have a 106-year-old woman celebrating her birthday on television. And they'll say, what is your trick to a long, healthy life? And she'll say, a bottle of red wine a day. <laughs> 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 and so you know there's gotta there's gotta be something more happening there because that doesn't work out so hot for everybody. Yeah, but it's like you say, that's what kill me. I cannot drink even glass of wine, I have headache. You have to know your own body, what it can tolerate, what it cannot, right? We all wired very, very differently. <laughs> oh, and I think that's the really big take home here is that there is this internal clock and there's ways we can condition it. And and there's been a lot of studies around metabolism, especially like um, fasting and other, other studies, mostly in rodents. But how does that relate to the methylation clock? Again, it's like uh, there is no proper studies, but I like to speculate even on the fact that there is an association between DNA methylation clock and obesity. And uh, that's like telling you something, right? Like obesity creates some uh, unwanted uh, condition. But if to go back to your point about rats or even C. elegans, worm models, it was so well demonstrated on many, many uh, different animals that uh, calorie restriction and low temperature is the key for ability to live longer. 
I wouldn't suggest that people has to be living in a cold environment, <laughs> but calorie restriction is doable. It is. I, I think there's a very good literature on that. And now when you flip side of this, the opposite side is that there's ways that we can control it. But when we do see it, are there some really good concrete associations between different methylation clocks and neurodegenerative disease? Like, can we use it almost as a predictive tool for different types of neurodegenerative disease? Again, it's very important question, which close to my heart. First of all, uh, for those one who are not familiar with neurodegenerative disorders, I have to say that all diseases in this category, Alzheimer, Parkinson, frontal temporal dementia, ALS, you name it, the strongest risk factor is aging. And that's why uh, my kind of genetic expertise in neurodegenerative disorders has to be supplemented with a DNA methylation clock because you cannot study something and ignore the strongest risk factor, aging, right? That's why uh, my focus was mainly on Corvus clock. And the reason for this, because this is a uniquely designed clock, it's called multi-tissue clock. Another way you can extract DNA from the blood and get similar information uh, as if you extract it from liver or from brain, and that's very important. This clock consists from 300 CPG, 353 maybe approximately CPGs, but um, uh, what is important is uh, its clock don't confound by cell tissue-specific changes. So it's allow you to measure DNA from the blood and get same information if you deal with the brain. And this particular clock I use uh, to study uh, ALS uh, cohorts and frontal temporal dementia cohort. And uh, what we discover in our lab, that there is a very, very strong association between DNA methylation clock acceleration and uh, age of onset of ALS in mutation carriers, but also in a generic ALS patients. So... About predictive value, I'm going back to my point that it's not we are not ready yet. Is it predictive or not? Because we need to do longitudinal studies. But definitely there is association. And uh, those one who understand p-values, it's 10 minus 13 in a relatively small cohort, 250 patients. So you cannot dismiss this. Uh, and uh, what I'm trying to do is to address the question whether there is a predictive value based on a collection of people who do not have disease yet but will have a disease. It might take five, six years on ALS cohort, but uh, we will have an answer. Wow, that's really incredible, though. That, I mean, that's a very strong association at, you know, at that level in such a small population. Yeah. Well, all of this is really interesting where we start looking at patterns that, that are, are there, but what are some of the other factors that can confound the interpretation of methylation data? Thank you for this question, because I would like to leave people with some very careful consideration for the data analysis, because, uh, for instance, we know that when we analyze data, there is some form of um, confoundance fa factors. For instance, uh, sex-specific differences was reported for multiple DNA methylation clock. 
which suggests a faster aging in men than women. And who knows, maybe it's explained why men live a shorter life than uh, women, right? So that's uh, one point. But when you analyze data, you have to take uh, under consideration this thing. And also uh, DNA uh, mutilation age actually uh, could be uh, different in older people than in younger people. Younger people have uh, uh, their, their clock... Um, uh, working faster, ticking faster <laughs> than in older people. So the current age of individual which came to study has to be taken under consideration. And of course, lots of uh, important uh, point, which is you if you deal with uh, DNA uh, from the blood even, blood composition, tissue composition could be slightly different between different people. And uh, Horvath's clock has a special function which take under account uh, the uh, cell composition in the blood. It's quite amazing that you can run simple software and yet to get information and correct a certain noise within the uh, DNA mutilation clock. I guess the other question is kind of a practical one, though, is that you say that you know you do a you can do a sample of from the blood. But, you know, those come from hemopoietic stem cells and are turned over at a fairly high level. So is this a methylation imprint that is really starting at the very foundation of hematopoiesis, that we're seeing this as at the level of the stem cell? Yes, uh, stem cells, it's like a different story because what happened, they, they lose in mutilation, uh, like they, they're kind of naive to the mutilation machinery. But what I'm trying to say that uh, I'm going back to the design of this uh, multi-tissue clock consisting from 353 CPGs. Those clocks, uh, clock was uh, actually deliberately designed and trained to read information from uh, the genes which respond similarly to age, regardless of the tissue composition. So that's why uh, if you, like I will step back a little bit, if you look at the uh, all 15 DNA mutilation clocks reported today, right? And you ask question, what is the overlap between specific CPGs or specific genes I would say very, very little because each clock trained on a different uh, model and with different question. And Horvath's clock was trained under condition that you don't want to have tissue specificity. You want to select certain uh, CPGs uh, within the certain set of genes which age similarly in every uh, single tissue of the human being. I have to say... It works for all tissues. I, I did check our autopsy material. It's beautiful. But in literature and in our experience, there are some tissues which do not uh, provide same information. For instance, sperm, forever young, <laughs> it doesn't age. <laughs> I don't know how is it like nature designed that sperm is, but maybe it makes sense, right? Like you don't want to. Uh, deal with aged sperm, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, also the breast uh, tissue uh, of women, uh, actually it's older than it should be, 15 years older than other tissues. So there are some tissues which would be uh, in a category uh, not uh, suitable for Horvath's multi-tissue clock, 
but brain, liver, and all other tissues will fall beautifully under this umbrella that it's not tissue specific. And do you think that there is a potential for a consumer grade predictive tool of this coming that maybe in the next decade you would go get a methylation pattern tested and then take that information to your physician for maybe preemptive screening for signs of some of these more notorious neurodegenerative diseases or is is that something that seems like it may be feasible it is feasible and you know where it could be very important uh it's, uh, for instance, when somebody doing clinical trials, right? And we know how many clinical trials failed uh, for neurodegenerative disorders, almost all of them, uh, apart from the mutation carriers. So what happened is uh, these clinical trials maybe have to take under account biological aging and to assess maybe some people who age more gracefully than others respond to particular therapy better, right? And it could be quite complicated at the end of um, exercise to develop the new drugs. Could be complicated uh, consideration of what we have to take in account for responders versus not responders. I view it as it will be genetic uh, polygenic risk score supplemented with DNA methylation clock, supplemented with uh, specific uh, lifestyle parameters, smokers versus not smokers. And altogether, it will give much more precise information about people who develop the condition and maybe when. This is all really interesting. When you look at all the animal studies that have been done, are there any mutations maybe in, I know that they've talked about longevity mutations in C. elegans, okay, in the worms. But what about in things like mice or drosophila? Are there uh, mutations that are known to either be deficient in methylation patterns or maybe uh, good at removing methylation patterns that are reflected in extremely long, healthy life? I have no idea about this (laughs) because uh, I I think it's in such a juvenile stage, this type of research, that people uh, do not realize the value yet uh, to do animal studies and to look for the particular genes which might be uh, uh, the trigger for premature aging. But I have to say that uh, it's a it's quite important topic. And one study which came uh, to my mind, it's original paper published by uh, Dr. Horvath uh, in 2013, and it's quite a quite uh, impressive paper. Actually, that's why I started to do this study, because I was so impressed with the paper. <laughs> and at first, I didn't believe. But when I looked at my own data, I thought, like, wow, that works. And since then, I'm like, I, I cannot uh, stop working on it because I see how important. But what he did in his study, he extracted the information which was publicly available. It was single author study which is unspeakable nowadays with this uh, multiple consortium paper. But he took advantage of the, uh, let's say, NIH request. When you do study, you put your raw data uh, at the particular server. And he looked not only at the um, human uh, stories, but he also was able to assess, I think, that monkey, I don't. I, I think it was gorillas. He, he had information on DNA mutilation. 
And he said in his paper that uh, DNA uh, mutilation pattern on, uh, based on his uh, epigenetic clock he developed uh, follow the same pattern as in human. So there is a conserved mechanism somewhere, somehow, but he didn't uh, say anything about other species. Okay, it's it's because it is a new field, so I understand. But it's interesting that they're finding those patterns. But what about in in diseases of accelerated aging? Things like progeria, um, sometimes Down syndrome is associated with premature aging. Do they ever look at the methylation patterns in those conditions where you have accelerated aging? Already, do you also see that kind of methylation? Yes, Down syndrome was investigated, and um, uh, there is a strong message that people with Down syndrome have um, accelerated uh, DNA methylation age. Uh, so that's like done. And in terms of um, progeria uh, condition, again, in the uh, original Horvath uh, uh, story, which he published 2013. Uh, he looked at the pattern of these people. I don't know if it was many cases. Of course, it's very rare condition. What his message was that it, it, their clock is completely messed up. You can, like there is no pattern. So here's a uh, cover both uh, angles uh, of your questions, uh, and it's expected. And yet, it, it's quite fascinating that whatever you touch with this study, it makes perfect sense. And, and here's an interesting kind of sociological question around this topic is that every time we hear something about aging, there always is some pseudoscience that kind of jumps on the bandwagon and tells you, well, here's a product that will reverse your methylation clock. And have we seen any of that happening yet in this area? I know only one study which uh, trying to address this, but it's done only on 10 people. And uh, I don't want to kind of uh, contaminate this conversation because it has to be confirmed. But if you look at the genes which underlie these DNA mutilation clocks, I did review with one of my uh, students from Holland. I was amazed that altogether these 15 genes employ, hundred, oh, I think that 160 different uh, uh, genes and these 160 genes, uh, so what I'm saying, 160,000 genes, they are very important functionally. They involved in development. They involved in uh, uh, cell decision making. So, and because each clock consists of multiple uh, CPGs and affect multiple genes, it's very difficult to imagine that you can play with a uh, few hundred genes to downregulate or upregulate them. However, what uh, our review found that there are 28 uh, genes within this uh, cohort of 160,000 genes, which is represented almost in all uh, DNA methylation clocks. And these genes probably the core activity during our aging. And maybe these 28 genes might be a subject of uh, uh, say, uh, manipulation, upregulate or downregulate depends on uh, direction during aging. So that could be done. But again, back to the, your point about uh, uh, animal models, it could be done only if there is a proper model for the aging 
uh, within the like, maybe it should be rather uh, primates than uh, mice, which have uh, relatively similar metabolism with us. It's difficult to assess. That's no, a really good point. It, but it's interesting that there that all of the clocks do boil down to a shared set of genes, which could be at the core of this process. So it, it's, it gives some kind of uh, maybe some hope in that maybe drugs could be developed to target the products of those genes in ways that could matter to help us have that increased health span. But, you know, uh, you know, I guess that's all speculation and maybe we could talk about it again in five more years. Yay. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Dr. Rogaeva. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And please promise that as breakthroughs occur, you'll keep me in mind and uh, join us again. For sure. Thank you very much for your nice question. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We appreciate your reviews. They help so much. And your kind words, letters, interactions on Facebook and Twitter. It's been a really great time to respond to all of your questions and ideas. And I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You, you could be in a performance somewhere <laughs> on a <laughs> stage. Are you sure you choose the right profession? You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.